enemies who are out against him. And so again, David's fears, as we see him work through this in this 56th Psalm, they're managed, are they not? David is recognizing that there are certain times when he must go to prayer. David is recognizing that God himself can be dependent on. David is recognizing that the word of God is that sure and steady anchor for the soul. And so what I want to do this morning as we work through this psalm again with the, with the primary idea of our theological management of our fears, with, this, with, that, with that primary idea, I want to set before you a threefold division of the psalm. Number one, we're going to take a look at David's fears. And as I said before, they are real fears. They are not irrational phobias. Real fears David was up against. Secondly, what I want you to see is David's prayer. And David's prayer takes three specific takes on three specific petitions, and we'll take a look at that. But the main thing we want to take a look at is David's trust. And this is really the thing that separates what I would call any merely psychological management of fears and points us to a true theological management of our fears. And so, by God's grace, we'll work through that this morning. But the first thing I want you to be aware of is David's fears. As I've said repeatedly already, these fears were real fears. And why do I say that? Well, this psalm has as its background uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. It's that time in David's life when Saul was chasing him and David flees from the land of Israel into the land of the Philistines. He goes to Gath. And what's very interesting is that right before he goes to Gath, as he's leaving the land of Israel, he goes to the place where God was worshipped. And at that place, there was the sword that was Goliath's that David had used to slay Goliath. And David takes that sword and he goes into the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines are not ignorant of who David is. They even say in that section of scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 21, Is not this he of whom they spake? Saul has killed, has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And imagine they see the sword with David. They know whose sword that once was. And so when David finds himself in Gath among the Philistines, what ends up happening is that there are all kinds of conspiracies that are being plotted against David. David was a mortal enemy to the Philistine people. And that David was not slain at all is almost an amazing thing to see. And as a matter of fact, the parallel, another parallel with that section of scripture in 1 Samuel is Psalm 34. You might not remember what Psalm 34 is, but I'm sure many of you have memorized passages in Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is that wonderful uh, expression of God's deliverance of David from the hand of the Philistines. And so again, those two Psalms, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, kind of surround that experience in 1 Samuel uh, 21 there. But as I said before, David's fears are real. And we see this in the way David expresses his fears in the psalm. Let's take a look here at verses 1 and 2. And notice what David says. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. I think the ESV says trample me. Uh, man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresses me. My enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. Now notice again what we see here by way of David's uh, uh, enemies. Again, we see that they not only have this one-time hatred or design against David, but it is a continual design against David. We see that it is not only what we might call one-dimensional or from one specific party, it is multiplied on many hands. And not only is it multiplied on many hands, it is again over and over something that they are plotting against David. David's 
fears are real because that which he faces is a real threat to his person and to his well-being. And it is an amazing thing that sometimes the people of God find themselves in situations just like this. Now, again, I think there's not a one of us who would not give thanks to God for the blessedness that we have this day of being in this place of worship and the thought of anybody molesting or bringing harm upon you for being in this place has probably not even entered your mind. But you know that there are places in the world today where the people of God must gather together under that threat. And for those people, just well for us as well, we have these great promises, even though we realize that there are true and genuine fears. And maybe from a mere psychological handling of fear, somebody would say, well, if that's the place where you find yourself in fear, just don't go there. But the people of God say, how can I not go to the place where God is worshipped? How can I not go to that place where I will hear with my own ears the praises of God ascending to heaven? And the people of God say, I want to be there. I want to be a part of that. I want to hear that with my own ears. I want to participate in that with my own lips. And so again, sometimes the people of God under great threats, sometimes those threats are, are very real by way of the tangibleness of the threats. But there are other threats that the people of God face that are not so tangible. And let me say this. I want to make sure that you understand this. Just because a threat is not tangible, that doesn't mean that it is not a real threat. And you may not recognize this and you may not realize this to the fullest extent. But the greatest threat that you and I face is the threat that comes upon us by way of the effects of our own sin. You may say, wait a minute here, I can't really see or I can't really tangibly sense the threat of sin. But you must learn to understand that when you look into the human experiences given to us in the word of God, God's own holy word, what we see is this, is that fear never entered into the human condition until man sinned. When man sinned, two things came upon him. Number one, shame, and number two, fear. Man understood that there was that sense in transgressing the law of a good and holy God. There were of necessity repercussions. And because of that, fear entered into human experience. And let me also say this, that your fear of God is no irrational fear. Your fear of offending God is no irrational fear. Matter of fact, did you notice here, and we'll get to this, two places in the psalm, I remember starting to read uh, verse 4 and verse 11. David says this, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Do you understand that when David sets before him the fear of God and the fear of man, he prioritizes the fear of God in such a way almost as to say this, it would be irrational for me who knows God the way I do to fear man more than I fear God. Do you know God that well? Do you know God in that personal matter to where whatever your friends would say, you would have to say to them, listen, I I understand what you're trying to say and the help that you're trying to give me. But it would be foolish for me to fear man more than I fear God. Not that there isn't times when, look, we find ourselves in some pretty fearful situations, don't we? And and again, I hate to go from, almost as I can put it this way, from one extreme to another extreme and trying to bring all these things together. Sometimes fears also grip us Not so much from other persons, but from circumstances or situations in life, don't they? There's really, again, when we take a look at, I think, I can't say for sure, but I would not be surprised if most of us know what it's like to face a time of unemployment, a time of uncertainty. Where is my provision going to come from? What a foolish question for a Christian to ask. Stop and think, even when I said that, right? Where is my provision going to come from? You know where it's going to come from. 
Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. That's where your provision is going to come from. And so again, all of these ideas, again, your fear of offending God is no irrational fear. And don't let anybody tell you who seems to be so wise in this world tell you that it is. Your most rational fear is that fear of offending a good, loving, just, and holy God. And your fears become irrational when they begin to focus on the creature or on man more than on God himself. So God give us grace in that. But David's fears were very real, as I said before. <clears throat> and again, we see not only in verses 1 and 2 by way of what his enemies were all about. Look also at verses 5 and 6. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Now notice this. This is a situation, again, that some of, some of you may have experienced. Some of us may have experienced. If you've not experienced it in the past, you may experience it in the future. Did you see what David says here? Look again in verse 5. Every day they rest my words. The picture here is of David's words being put on the rack and being stretched out in order to find things in those words that David never intended to be said. But because certain words were used, those words can now be used against David. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Somebody says back to you the words that you said. Excuse me. And you say, well, that's not what I meant by those words. You said it. The words being stretched and twisted. David is aware that his enemies have an ear open to his words in order to trip him up in his words. We also see here in verses 5 and 6, again, every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Whenever they think of me, it's all about trying to destroy that which I'm doing, David says. And so again, not only are they looking to trap him in his words, they are devising evil against this man, David. Verse 6, they gather together, they hide themselves, they mark my steps when they wait for my soul. What's David saying here? Look, have you ever had anybody mark you out and watch your steps? And maybe not say to you, I got my eye on you, but you have that sense that there's somebody who's just watching you in order to when you fail and get in the situation, everything is going to be used against you in that moment. These, these words of David's enemies, I, I can't help but making the application here, remind me so much of the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ that he experienced in his day. Didn't they use his words against him? When I was preaching through the Gospel of John, uh, and we saw in, in John chapter 2, where Jesus says, destroy this temple, in three days I will rise it up. He's referring to the temple of his own body. The scripture makes that clear. And when Lord Jesus Christ is standing before Pilate and before Caiaphas giving an account, do you know what the false accusers say against him? This man said he was going to destroy the temple. And so again, those words being twisted out of place, those words being used against the Lord Jesus Christ. There was Judas plotting and watching the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ so that at the right time he would betray Jesus with a kiss. And so again, these words remind us of our Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it a wonderful thing to know that all the plottings of all those who had evil intentions of Jesus Christ, all their sins were joined with our own sins and placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross. So that at the cross of Calvary, payment and atonement would be made for the sins of the people. And so again, whatever we see here by way of David's enemies, whatever parallel we can draw by way of our own enemies, we can think that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered at the hands of his enemies in order that you and I might be free from our sin. So again, David's, David's fears were very real. David's enemies were very real. But the next thing I want you to see here is David's prayer. 
And David's prayer really takes on a threefold petition, if I can put it that way. And the first thing that David prays for is mercy. Look again at verse 1 here. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would daily swallow, for man would swallow me up. But the first thing I want you to see here is that David's prayer is a prayer for mercy. And this is phenomenal. That there is with God these everlasting mercies. That there is with God in his nature this expression of help in the time of the believer's misery. And one of the things that you'll find if you study out what mercy is and try to distinguish between mercy and grace and and love and all these things, one of the things that you'll see over and over again is that mercy is really directed toward man's misery. As a matter of fact, that's kind of a helpful helpful way to, to give you a handle on what the mercy of God is. Mercy always has its direction toward the misery of man. And so when, a, when an individual finds himself in a time of misery, the mercy of God is there. Isn't that phenomenal? Yes. To know that when you're in mercy, excuse me, that when you're in misery, there is a mercy in God that is there for you. Amen. And that like David, you can go to God in prayer and ask God to be merciful to you. I can't help but thinking that this mercy of God really is also connected with God's covenant faithfulness to his people. So oftentimes the terms of the covenant are put in, in terms of, of God's everlasting kindness, his loving kindness, his merciful kindness. And so there is a sense in which David is able to pray to God on the basis of covenant promises, on the basis of solid covenant realities. And David, in a time of mercy, excuse me, in a time of misery, is able to seek God in his mercy. And if that was true for David and the covenant promises that God made to him, How much more is it for us who are in covenant relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ? You see, it is the covenant that we have with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the covenant that is symbolized for us here this morning in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is the covenant sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that covenant, you can go to God in all of your misery and find and seek the mercy of God. So David's prayer, first and foremost, was a prayer for mercy. But that's not all that we see here by way of this prayer of David. What we also see here is that David is praying for the frustration of his enemy's plans. And even more than that, he's praying for the casting down of his enemies. Now, this is technically one of those places in the word of God that we see this this kind of praying, which is known as imprecation, where there is a praying against an individual, where there is a praying not for the benefit of the well-being of an individual, but actually a praying for, number one, the frustration of their plans, but also, number two, the disruption, and even if need be, the destruction of their persons. Now, this is a very, very difficult theme for us to enter into sometimes, particularly by way of our understanding of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and telling us to pray for our enemies, but that will help us here. Because whenever we pray in an imprecatory fashion, one of the things that we have to understand is that the best way to pray against an individual is to pray for their salvation. That God would shake them off of their sin. That God would grant unto them repentance. That God would put to death in them the sin that they would use to kill us. And that God would bring about true and real repentance. But also, let me say this that it is proper, as I understand the word of God, both Old and New Testament, that it is proper for the people of God at times to pray that God would frustrate the plans of wicked men against the church of Jesus Christ and against his people. 
What a day we live in. You've probably all heard the, the news from last night and this morning. Another one of these terrorist attack, attacks, supposedly in the name of Allah. And these things go on. It's right for the church of Jesus Christ to pray that God would frustrate the plans and the devices of wicked men. It's right that we would pray that God would bring their plans to nothing. It's even more proper that we would pray that God would convert these men and bring them to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And to understand that the greatest work of God that they can do is this work of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, which is no work at all, but a free gift offered by God. And so again, in this, what we see is this idea how that even when a believer finds himself or herself in a time of difficulty, they may be in such a serious situation that it's right and proper in a very Christ-like fashion and in a very judicious fashion to pray in a manner where we would pray that the evil devices of the wicked would not come to pass, but would be frustrated, and that those prayers would blossom in the true repentance of those who seek the harm of God's people. So this imprecatory praying. Much more could be said there, but we're going to move on. There's one more thing that David prays for, though, here, in this 56th Psalm. Look down here at verse 13. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, wilt, thou, wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I might walk before God in the light of the living? This third petition that David prays for is a petition for life. David's prayer is for life. David wasn't in a situation where he says, Lord, I don't see any way out of this. Please take me home. Let this all be done with. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> That's not the way David prays here. David prays for life. Why? Because brothers and sisters, life is a blessing. Because brothers and sisters, life is a gift of God. Because brothers and sisters, life is that place where God has given you the opportunity to do the will of God. I remember my pastor saying one time in a very insightful way, he says this, this life is the only opportunity that we have to do the work of God in this world. There's a sense in which this life is the, only life is the only opportunity we have to do battle for God. To bring the gospel to bear. To save sinners from their path to hell. This life is the only place where that happens. So what does David long for? David longs for life. Why? Did you see what else he said in this 13th verse? That I might walk before God in the light of the living. That is one of the key differences between any psychological managing of fear and theological managing of fear. When you manage your fears theologically, you are doing it for the purpose not only of not only, not merely for the sake of mental well-being, you are doing it for the purpose that God might be glorified in the remainder of your life. You don't want to be gripped with fear. You don't want to be weighed down with fear. Why? Because there's, if I can put it this way, there's too much that God has for you to do in this world. And that's what the person who is managing and dealing with his fears is saying. God has work for me to do. There's a work that God has called. And if, and if I can put it this way, God has a work for you that's unique to you. You know that passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. That passage of scripture, good works which God has ordained for you to walk in. God has good works that are already been set aside, so to speak, for you to walk in. Are you fulfilling those works? And it's only in the land of the living, the light of the living, that you have opportunity to do that. 
And so again, when you manage your fears from a theological perspective, you are doing it not merely for the sake of mental well-being. That will come. But you're also doing it for the sake that you may be freed from the grip of fear in order to be freed to do the work of God. You see, theologically managing our fears. But we move from David's fears to David's prayers. Again, the threefold prayers there. Now to David's trust. And what we're going to see are the very particulars that David brings out by way of what David's faith looks like. And this is, if I can put it this way, this is really the nuts and bolts of this whole management of our fears. This is really where we see the how-to, if I can put it that way. I want to be careful here because one of the things I think that we realize after we've walked with God for a while is that it's, it's not, the Bible is not so much a how-to manual. We want to be careful with that because the Bible kind of is, is meant to, to permeate life. I think I've used the, this illustration a number of times here already, I've noticed, but the, the Bible is intended not to make us mechanically do what we ought to do, but organically bring forth the fruit or the, or the very image of Jesus Christ in the life. And what's wonderful about it, that is this, is that even as there is a, a variety of, of flowers that we see growing, and every flower has its own particular beauty, its own particular scent, so the people of God doing the work of God organically, if I can put it that way, bring forth this kind of glorious fragrance and this, and this, and this wonderful uh, uh, visual beauty concerning the work of God in their lives. And so again, not mechanically we set these things out before you, but I want you to see what they look like organically. And there are a number of things that we see in this psalm here that, uh, that point to us uh, how David trusts in the Lord in this psalm. And the first place that we see this is in verse 3. Notice what David says here. Again, in verse 3, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Here we have the mere statement of the fact that David in the the theological managing of his fears is going to trust in the Lord. But I want you to see something here. Do you notice how that David in one sense is really taking the responsibility of management here? Whatever there was by way of the initial shock and whatever there was by way of the initial stumble and whatever there was by way of the initial, excuse me, flight, or fight, whatever there is, whatever there was by way of that, David now takes steps to manage his fears. And he does it by way of determined attitude. He doesn't say, brothers and sisters, I, you know, I hope when I'm afraid I'm going to be able to trust in God. He doesn't do that, does he? David says, at what time I am afraid I will trust David taking responsibility for his soul. David being the only available preacher that David can hear in the moment. And sometimes that's what you have to be to yourself. Sometimes there's not a preacher around to preach you in the faith. You have to be that individual. You have to take the word of God. And you have to say to yourself, at the time when I'm afraid, I will trust in God. And so again... David managing these things. But did you notice here, verse 3, David saying, when I'm afraid, David, you're afraid? David, I thought you killed a lion. I thought you took out a, I thought you slew Goliath. I thought you were talking all bold when your brother was saying that nobody could take out Goliath. And you said about Goliath, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? And so again, David, yes, David, that, 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 that man of, that, that man among men, David saying, what time I am afraid? Gentlemen, That's us sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes that rumbling in the stomach that we hear isn't the person next to us. Sometimes it's us. 
Sometimes that weakening of the knees, those are our knees that are clattering together. But in that moment, there's a managing. Or maybe after that moment, but there is the managing. And we will say by the grace of God, at what time I'm afraid. I'm not afraid to admit that. Yeah, sure, I get it. There are things that we run into that, that set us back. There are things that we run into that terrify us at times. There are times when we have to see the danger coming and steal ourselves in the grace of God. Another one of these great differences between the theological and the psychological management. David doesn't say, at what time I am afraid, I'm going to remember who I am and what I did. At what time I'm afraid, I'm going to make them understand that this is the guy that took Goliath down. And you think you're going to do something against this David? That's not what David does. But if any man had the capacity to do that, it would have been David. And so if this man David says, at what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Let us not be afraid to say, at what time I'm afraid, I'm running to God. And I'm depending on his resources. I'm not looking to my own resources here. And why do I say these things? Because from a psychological management of fear, that's what you will be referred to. You will be told to assess the situation. You will be told to examine what abilities, what resources you have. You will be told if you don't find yourself enough resources to seek other resources. But again, this whole thing is, is staying on the human plane. David is going to the divine. David is going to God himself. At what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And what we see here is that not only does David make this statement that he will trust in the Lord, he shows us what that's going to actually look like. And I think that's helpful, isn't it? Because what I want to convey here isn't just the emotion, if I can put it this way, of like, you know, manliness in the situation and then kind of not knowing what to do after that. David lays out for us exactly what he does. Look at what we see here. Look what we see here in, uh, in, in, in verses 4 and 10. The first thing I want you to know is that David not only trusts in the being of God, David trusts in the word of God. Look at verse 4. In God, I will praise his word. In God, have I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Look at verse 10. Uh, in God, I will praise his word. Uh, in the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. What is David doing here? David is trusting in the word of God. I have to say something here. And I want to encourage you by this. I don't in any way, I, I don't in any way want to uh, berate you here. It would be wrong for me to do that. It would not be very, it would not be proper at all. But I want you to ask yourself the question, Christian, do you know what promises God has for you in this book? What life-giving promises, what life-saving promises. That's why David says, in God I will praise it. Three times he says it. In God I will praise his word. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. And what this does, this not only shows us how that David like, kind of does this trusting thing, he shows us that it is in the word of God, in this precious book of God, in this love letter dropped down to heaven to you, in the comforts that we see here. <clears throat> I think of that great passage of scripture in, in, in Psalm 94, and uh, I think in Psalm 94, uh, verse 14. I believe this is the passage of scripture here. Uh, Psalm, uh, it, it, and it's, um, it's, it's not, so don't, don't turn there. But what David says, when, 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 he, is in, when he is in anxiety, uh, God's, com- God, God's counsels uh, or God's, delight, God's delights comfort his soul. 
And the delights of God there are the very promises of God. And so there is this sense in which David is, again, finding all of his resources in God and in his word. But do you notice what else David is doing here? He is taking the active steps to praise God. Three times he brings this out. I will praise God. I will praise God. I will praise God for his word. I will praise God for his word. Let me say this. I don't know how all of us are kind of like wired by the way that we think. But, but I have a feeling that if you are more theologically inclined than you are inclined to experience, you might think something, you may not verbalize it like this, but you might say something like this. Well, it's kind of quaint, isn't it, that, that there is people who, you know, they get together and they praise God and they get all happy. We have to be careful with that because praise is genuinely a weapon that God has given to his people to in the time of fear have something to truly and fully rest in. You see, because what praise does, if I can put it this way, praise moves the promises of God from the intellect to the soul. Praise embraces the very things that God is promising. And so David is showing us in this time of prayer, uh, fear, what is he doing? He is praising God. So he's praising, yeah, so he's depending on, on, on God. He's praising God's word. But do you know what else he's doing here in his time of fear? And what else he is doing here in this time of fear is given to us in verse 8. And David is not only praising God for his word, David is not only depending on the very nature of God, David is remembering the compassion of God towards his soul. Look at verse 8. What does David say here? Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? This is one of the most picturesque passages in the word of God as to what the compassion of God looks like. Put my tears in a bottle. Do you know, just by way of interesting kind of thought, you can buy a little tear bottle? <clears throat> I think it's referred to as a lactorium, I believe. The first part of the word is the Latin word for tears. Sometimes you'll see people with a little lactorium around their, their necklace. And this idea that David is able to say, Father, you know my sufferings and my difficulties so well that when my tears flow from my eyes, you will not let those tears hit the ground. You will gather them up in your bottle. My tears reserved in heaven your tears in heaven God also saying not only are they, are they in this little precious bottle but they are also in his book I'm amazed how many times I hear references to books in the Bible I think there's a wonderful library in heaven I really do there's a book of eternal life there's a book of remembrance and there's a book of your sorrow the library of heaven. You see, God is to David, this God of great compassion. And when David is in the midst of his fears, and when David manages, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when David manages his fears from a theological perspective, he is not looking to human resources. He's not trying to trick himself psychologically. He's not saying, you know what, if I just get close enough to what I fear and do it in successive steps, Maybe I won't fear it as much. That's not what David's doing. David is conducting himself in such a way that will not only give him peace of mind, it will also bring glory to God and it will bring emphasis to the great love that God has for his soul. That's what you have as well. 
this covenant that God has made with you in Jesus Christ. And so again, David remembering the compassion of God, but something else. David depends upon the nature of God. David depends upon the word of God. David looks to the compassion of God. But David does something else. And we see that in verse 9. Notice what what we see here in verse 9. When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. This I know, for God is for me. You see, in many ways, people would hear that and say, what an arrogant thing to say, God is for you. It's not arrogant. It's the most humble thing you can say based on the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That God is for you. Isn't this what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8? If God be for us, who can be against us? You see, this becomes the framework in which you and I deal with the very real fears that we face. And we can either go to pieces, and if you're, we can either go to pieces, or if you're allowing me, we can go to prayer. And if we go to prayer in our times of fear, you see all the things that are laid before us here. We have the very being of God, the whole being of God that we can embrace. We have the reality of his word and the promises that he makes, his compassion, and now that identity that God is forming. But how do you know that God is for you? The psalmist was able to say this. Paul was able to say it in Romans 8. But how do you know that God is for you? Well, there's only one way that you can know it with certainty. And that's through the response of the heart to the message of God's love in Jesus Christ on the cross. That when you move from unbelief to faith, when you move from that self-centered life to a Christ-centered life, when you understood the weight of your sins and through repentance, and even need, if, even if need be, tears of repentance, which, by the way, God has in the bottle, when you went through all that, That was your act of faith in Jesus Christ. And now because of that, and in a wonderful thing, it's not even because of who you are, but because God loves his son so much that now you being joined to his son, you belong to him. Those of you who have in-laws know what that's about. (laughs) I didn't mean that to be a joke. (laughs) You love your in-laws. You do. They may be difficult at times, but you love them. There may be stress in those relationships at times. But you've said to yourself, my daughter or my son loves this one. Then I love him too. You see, God is for you. He's for you because of Jesus Christ. He's for you through that great act of faith. And this is the way in which you and I manage our fears. We are not reduced to mere psychological well-intended resources or instructions, we are thrown back on God himself. And this leads us again to that 13th verse, that I might walk before God in the light of the living. That's the key difference between all theological management of fear and psychological management of fear. And it's in that very act of living out and living through those fears to the glory of God, that you become more than a conqueror. How do I mean that? Did you notice what's happened in the psalm? David's enemies intended to kill him by stretching out his words, by marking his steps, by having evil intentions against them. And what did those things do to David? Those things drove David closer to God. And the very thing that the enemy intended to kill David with was the very thing that brought David closer to God. That's what exactly what Paul means in Romans 8. 
We are more than conquerors. How and why? Because the very thing that Satan intends to shake you off of from Christ are the very things that lead you closer to Christ. More than a conqueror. This is the theological management of a Christian's fears. Less technically, this is the managing of the Christian's fears from that standpoint of understanding that God in Christ loves me and that everything that he brings my way is intended to bring glory to his name and to draw me closer to him even in my difficulties. My Christian friends, fears will abound. We will face them maybe this week. But in the moment you are struck with fear, you go back to Psalm 56 and you manage those fears from a theological perspective to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for all the things that you bring our way, sometimes uncomfortable in the moment, but yet, Father, when our heads are right and our hearts are right, we understand that you do this, Father, for the exaltation of your great name and even for our good. And how glad we are, Father, to be able to say to ourselves, to be able to display before the principalities and powers, to be able to confess before a watching world that my fears that come upon me are just instruments for your glory and for my further good. And so, Father, help us to conduct ourselves in that way and help us, we pray, Father, that in doing that, we might point those who are in the fear or the bondage of their own fear, that they might see what you have allowed us to see in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.